When I was born 48 years ago, uh, I came out slightly, very slightly, darker skinned than the rest of my family. I've always taken great pride in that. I have had to use less sunscreen. Um, I, have had, I have been less obviously foreign uh, in, in our Brazilian context. But what I was told when I was very young, and I realize now, of course, that it was a joke, but I was told by my family, well, you're a little darker than the rest of us because you were born in Brazil. <laughs> but listen, I was so proud of that. I was so proud of that. And I used to tell people, we would travel back to the United States. I remember when I was five years old and I would tell people, I'm a little bit darker because I'm Brazilian, because I was born in Brazil. And I took great joy, great, proud and great pride in that fact until one day, the foundations of everything that I believed about myself were shattered and shaken. Thanks to my big sister, Catherine. Uh, I don't remember the exact context, but somehow I had brought this up in a public setting. And I think my sister, my older sister, probably now thought that um, it was time that her younger brother be educated in the realities of life. And she was maybe a little embarrassed that I still, I don't know how old I was, seven or eight, I still had this false conception that it was my birth, the fact that I was born in Brazil that gave me slightly, I was a little bit more moreno, you know, than my family, as we'd say in Portuguese. And when my older sister broke this to me, I'm not exaggerating, I went through all the stages of grief. First, it was denial. I was, I was I, that's not true, that's not true. Mom and dad said this ever since I was born. I know it's true. And then from denial, I went into anger. Why would you do this to me? How could you, you know? And then from anger to just being totally brokenhearted, you know, absolutely devastated, and then finally to acceptance. My foundations of reality had been shaken. And something I had always believed was true about myself, something that I valued greatly and took great pride in, it turned out to be a joke. As we work our way through the book of Acts, Christianity is beginning to shake the foundations of Judaism. This was not because Judaism had been wrong, but because Jesus was the fulfillment of the Jewish religion. But many of the Jews couldn't bring themselves to accept that. They couldn't accept that something so, that was so radical could fit into their perspective. They were stunned to the core because that upon which they had built their lives, the beliefs that you know, had, had guided them from infancy for most of them, these beliefs were being challenged. And many of these Jerusalem Jews, especially the religious leaders, they could not and would not accept that Jesus, the man whom they were guilty of crucifying, was not only their Messiah, but he was also the very son of God. Now we've already seen the resistance to the gospel by the Sanhedrin as they arrested the apostles and put them on trial, beat them, you know, flogged them, and eventually released them, but then trying to prohibit them from speaking any further in Jesus' name. And while that was bad, it's about to get much, much worse. And the events that give rise to the first great persecution of Christians in history is what lies before us today. 
Today I'll be reading from Acts 6, beginning with verse 8. I'll be reading through verse 15. In this passage, we're going to be introduced uh, a little bit more intimately to this man named Stephen. Stephen was one of the seven who were chosen as deacons or as servants to the church. We looked at this last week. They were the ones who were chosen because they were full of the Spirit and full of wisdom, and they were given the task of making sure that the food distribution was carried out fairly and that the Hellenistic widows were not being ignored in the distribution of food. This is Stephen. And now we're in verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen. They could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. The first question I want us to consider this morning is in what ways did these people resist the gospel? Note the four things that characterize Stephen's character and actions in this passage. In verse 8, we see that he was full of God's grace and power. And then in verse 10, we read that he was full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit. So this is what his opponents are fighting against. God's grace, God's power, God's wisdom, and God's spirit. It's not going to go well for them. When we look at it in this light, it seems pretty foolish. But these people have chosen to be blind to the truth. I also want to say that it's probably worth worth it for us to put ourselves in their shoes a little bit. It's easy to criticize them. But if we do consider that they have been faithful to their beliefs for a lifetime, and suddenly there's somebody new that's making changes or shaking and adding and differentiating, and it's, it's bothering them. And I think many of them were probably motivated by good reasons. They wanted to preserve the faith of their fathers. They wanted to keep Jerusalem and the temple and the law holy. But... Even in their well-intentioned actions, they have set themselves up against, as I just said, God's grace, God's power, God's wisdom, and God's spirit. 
The first method they use to oppose Stephen and his teaching is argument and debate. It's conversation. Apparently, these were primarily Hellenistic Jews, Jews of Grecian origin. They were foreigners to Jerusalem uh, because they're from Cyrene and Alexandria. Alexandria, of course, would have been in Egypt, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. So these are Jews that are not native to Jerusalem. And from most evidence we can find about Stephen, it seems that he was also Grecian or Hellenistic in origin. So it was natural that he would go to the people with whom he had the most in common. So as he starts to preach and he starts to um, teach about the gospel, about Jesus, he goes to the people that he knows. He goes to the people with whom he shares a language and a culture. And these were part of a synagogue that was known as the synagogue of the freedmen. Now, I want us to hear something. There is some irony here and there is some sarcasm here. When we read scripture, we often read it in a monotone. And because of that, we forget that these are real people talking. And this is a real history that's being portrayed for us. And that there's humor in the Bible. And there's sarcasm in the Bible. And this is a sarcastic, ironic comment in parentheses that Luke mentions here. Why? He says, the synagogue of the freedmen. And the implication is they're free. And then Luke says, ironically, as they were called. Why? In this context, we know they're not free. At least, they're not free spiritually. They're in bondage. And they haven't yet acknowledged the freedom that could come to them through Jesus through his death and through his resurrection. So just notice that little wink that Luke's giving us there. Uh, the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. And, but remember, regardless, they're arguing against divine grace, divine power, divine wisdom, and divine spirit. The result, it's a foregone conclusion. They're going to lose. When I was growing up here at Calvary International Church, we used to have a family camp, family retreat over Carnival. And one of my friends was uh, named Danny Downs. Um, some of you may remember his parents, Dale and Patty Downs, who were members here and ministered with us um, a few years ago. Uh, anyway, Danny and I were the same age, but um, at that point in his life, Danny was um, skinny and um, light. And at one of these family camps, I don't know how it started, Danny started picking on, Danny was probably about 16 years old, he started picking on one of the men in the church. And this man's name was Dan, also Dan, Dan Morocco, and he was huge. He had been a wrestler, he had been a Marine in the United, in the United States Marines Force. His shoulders were incredibly broad, he wasn't very tall, he was massive. And he was in great shape. And Danny just kept picking on him, constantly picking on him, picking on him, and saying, I could take you. I could take you, Mr. Morocco. Come on, come on, give me a chance. Let's go, let's go. I can take you. And it ended up that one afternoon, I think just about the whole camp gathered because Dan Morocco, the man, accepted Daniel Downs' challenge. And so everyone's kind of standing around this grassy area, and you see this little toothpick, you know, who's out there. And there's this massive man, and everyone's watching. And you know what? There was never any doubt. There was never any doubt about the outcome. That wrestling match took approximately five seconds. And it ended with Danny on his head, 
with a cross. Anyway, I can't even describe it. It was funny. It was incredible. But the point is, the result was never in doubt. There was never a question about who was going to win. And as we read this text here and we see who these people are setting themselves up against, we know they're never going to win. They're never going to win this debate. They're not going to be able to, to argue against Stephen. And that's exactly right. They cannot stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. So, determined to increase the pressure on Stephen and unwilling to consider that, you know, maybe this guy's right, they move the conflict from the religious realm to the legal realm, and they have Stephen arrested. Since they can't silence him by debate, they're going to try to silence him by law. But they've also learned their lesson. A fair fight isn't going to work. So they're going to stack the cards against him. They, have, they bring in false witnesses. They find liars who are willing to make untrue accusations against Stephen. And when we read these accusations, they sound, to us today, they sound pretty innocuous. It's like, is it really worth you know, an entire city getting all heated up and bothered and, and, and tense over... These accusations? Why would the courts care that this nobody was speaking against Moses or against the temple? Because those are the two primary points that the false, false witnesses raise. I want to introduce you to a word. It's a, it describes a figure of speech in English. The word is metonymy. And a metonymy is when a word, a related word is used in place of the actual word. It's a figure of speech. So for instance, maybe you're watching the news and it says, according to the White House, immigrants will no longer be allowed into the United States or something like that. Now, the White House did not speak, right? We know this. But what is the word White House? It's being substituted for what? The president, right? That's called metonymy. So actually, when these when these men are accusing Stephen of speaking against Moses, they're using this figure of speech, metonymy. They're actually talking about the law. It's not that he's speaking against the person of Moses, but he's speaking against the Jewish law that was mediated to them from God, but through Moses. So they're attacking, they're claiming that Stephen is attacking the law that Moses gave to them. And we see this emphasized again in verse 14. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. That's the law. When they speak about this holy place, they're speaking of the temple. Now these are the two great pillars of Judaism. The law that governed every aspect of their daily lives and the temple, which was the place of the glory of God that governed their worship. I was trying to think of some kind of accusation that could be made today that might carry the same kind of unrest for us. And I think the closest I could get to in our current context would be that a politician is accused of raising taxes and putting us back in a total and complete lockdown. 
okay? Try to think of that. Oh, wait, that's happening. Those accusations are being made. Oh, wait, okay, anyway. Um, but that's the kind of social pressure that could be put on someone. If this guy's elected, he's gonna raise taxes, you're gonna suffer in your wallet, and, and he's gonna put you in a total lockdown. So those who are plotting against Stephen, they know the pressure points for the Jewish people. They know where to attack for two reasons. First of all, these accusations are going to inflame the common people. They're going to get public opinion going against Stephen. Secondly, and this is very important, the Jews were under Roman occupation and capital punishment was out of their jurisdiction except for one concession the Romans had made. So the Jewish authorities were not allowed to condemn anyone to death with one exception. If that person were con convicted of offenses by word or by deed against the sanctity of the temple. Now that, that fact actually helps us to understand a little bit about Jesus' trial, doesn't it? When Jesus was first taken before the Jewish authorities, do you remember the accusation in Mark that's made? This man said that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. But they couldn't get their, their witnesses to agree in that case, so they eventually had to settle in taking Jesus to Pilate so that Pilate, the Roman authority, could condemn him to death. But this is why they are very strategically accusing Stephen of actions and words against the temple because if he's convicted, if they can prove it, then they have the right to execute him without seeking the Roman authority. Now, the ones who oppose Stephen and ultimately the gospel, they found witnesses, didn't they, who were willing to lie and willing to falsely accuse him of offenses against the law and against the temple. And as I said earlier, I don't have any doubt that many of these people who were motivating this had pure motives, or at least they thought they did. They were sincere. They thought they were doing the right thing by attempting to protect their faith and their practice from corruption. But in their zeal, they break their own law that they're trying to preserve. What does Exodus 20, 16 say? It's one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Do you see again the irony? In their zeal to protect their law, they are breaking their law. They've done exactly that. I want to dig a little deeper into the motivation these people may have had because I think it's here that we're going to find the way to apply this passage to us. If we truly consider their lies against Stephen, I think we will see that keeping control is at the center of their motivation. First, they accuse Stephen of offenses against the Jewish law mediated to them by Moses and passed on from generation to generation. If they can preserve the law, then they can keep control of their own salvation. So think about this with me. With the law, they think they have the formula for holiness. The guidelines are spelled out in black and white, right? We have 
and as did they, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They have the law. And now, in this, at this point, they also have the prophets. So all they have to do is fo- follow those guidelines, follow the law, and they will be holy. There's no need for a savior. There's no need for surrender. There's no need for a transformed heart. There's no need for relationship with God. There's no need for faith in something beyond themselves because they can control their own salvation. Sometimes there's no formula. Sometimes sometimes we would like there to be. It would make things a little bit easier I know that Julie and I joke about the fact that sometimes all we need, all we want is a formula for how we're supposed to love each other. So, and then we can just do it. But in those moments of stress and those moments of sadness or grief as a couple, it's like, what can I do to make things better? And there's really nothing you can do. But if I have the law, I'm in control of my own salvation. But we know that this is an illusion, Right? If you haven't realized in yourself that you cannot be perfectly obedient to Christ, then then you're lost. Because no one can keep the law perfectly. That's why Jesus came. That's why he died. That's why he rose again. That's why he fulfilled the law in a way that no human being ever could. Because he lived it perfectly. None of us ever could do that. And that's why everyone who's ever been born on this earth needs him, needs Jesus to be their savior. Because the law has the power to reveal sin. Paul talks about this at length in Romans. It can show us how far we fall short. But it can't save. It cannot save. I remember as a kid, I desperately wanted to be able to dunk a basketball. Um, Never succeeded, at least not without a ladder. And, um, but I remember practicing my jumping. You know, I'd like run through the house and jump up and tap the ceiling or something like that. And I thought, man, I'm really, my, my jump, my vertical is increasing. I'm getting much, much higher. And that worked in my mind until I went out on the basketball court. And I was jumping and trying to touch the rim and I was just as far away as I, as I had always been. That rim up there, that's like the law. It shows us how far we fall short. We don't have the law. We think, hey, I'm doing great. I'm doing really well. I'm, getting, I'm jumping higher and higher and higher. No, you're not. So the law appears and it shows us, it reveals sin in the hearts of people. Now, secondly, they have accused Stephen of offenses against the temple. Where is the control issue here? For the Jews, they believed that the glory of God dwelt in the temple and in the temple alone, and that the temple was the only place that God could be fully worshipped. If they could keep God in the temple, then God would be limited. They would control him. They would control all Jews by keeping the center of worship in Jerusalem. They could make God more understandable if he were limited to a specific space. They could keep God Jewish. 
but God can't be contained. He will not keep to any human attempts to limit him, to control him, or to even understand him. He is a God out of the box, a God who so often does the unexpected, a God who does not love and save only certain people, only a certain nation, only the Jews, but who seeks and saves people of all tribes, tongues, and nations. A God who is about to sweep across the Gentile world, bringing his truth and salvation to those whom the Jews had believed for, their, for generations were anathema to him. The law can't save us, and God cannot be contained. And yet those are two areas that we try, even we today, those who, of us who claim to be Christians living in 2020, control that we try to maintain, or at least we try to maintain the illusion of that control. These two truths, that the law can't save and that God cannot be contained, require that any approach between God and his people be on God's terms, not ours. Any hope of divine help or salvation rests in our complete surrender to him. Though it may be subtle, we can try to keep God at a distance while still trying to be good on our own. We can try and control our own salvation while never truly giving our full selves into his hands. Our bodies, our souls, our hopes, our dreams, our well-being, our futures, our families, our kids, our jobs. Now, with this, I want you to understand, um, I am not arguing against obedience. I'm not suggesting that obedience goes counter to salvation. But what I do want to get at is that it's a question of order and purpose. This morning, I have a, well, I have an electric kettle that I heat water in each morning to make coffee. And this morning, I filled the kettle with water and I turned it on and I left to, to go get something. I came back in and I thought, man, this is taking a long time to boil. It doesn't usually take this long because it was unplugged. It, someone, Ethan, Micah, who knows, Julie, someone had unplugged it. And so, um, you know, I had wasted that time and it wasn't heating the water. Now, at that point, I can sit there and press that button over and over and over and over again. I can lift it and push it down again, lift it, push it down again, all the while hoping that it will plug itself in and will function if I just keep pushing the button. As we know, it will never happen. But is that therefore an argument that I should never press the button? No. It's an argument that something else needs to happen first before I press the button. I need to plug that kettle in, and now when I press the button, coffee. It's a wonderful thing, a wonderful blessing. So thank you, Daniel. Yes, amen. Here's the point. We do not obey because we do not obey so that we can be saved. We are saved so that we can obey. It's a matter of pressing the button before or after the kettle is plugged in. If I press it after the kettle is plugged in, the desired effect will result. 
but if I continue to press it before, I will never get the desired effect. If, if we try to obey so that God will save us, we will always fail. But if we come to the Lord in surrender, acknowledging that we desperately need him, that I cannot be good on my own, I can't meet this law, I can't fulfill it, Jesus, you already have. I come to you and my life is yours. I repent of my sin and I accept your fulfillment of the law in my place. Thank you. I accept your righteousness in place of my filthy rags. I accept your forgiveness in the place of my sin. And now, because I am saved, because I now belong to you, Jesus, I will obey you. Because... I am yours. The gospel will always shake our foundations. It will always make us uncomfortable with sin and self. It will always require us to relinquish control, even in our religiosity, and surrender to a God who cannot be contained by any human efforts. So the question I want to end with in asking each of us this morning is, what are the ways in which you are desperately trying to maintain control while resisting the full surrender of yourself into the arms of Jesus? Is it a question of your future? Is it a question of your relationships? Is it a question of your own pride? I can do this. I can be good. I can obey perfectly. I can conquer this. What is it? Because that desperate desire to retain control that we see reflected in these Jewish leaders here, it leads to their condemnation. It doesn't lead them into salvation. It leads to their condemnation. And the more that we try to desperately retain control as opposed to saying, okay, Jesus, you are shaking my foundations. You are shaking my life. You're shaking my understanding. But you are God. And I choose to surrender and release myself into your care. The result of that attitude is salvation, it is rest in him, and it is his presence in us consistently. Next week we're going to see, well, I don't think this is any big spoiler alert to any of you, but um, Stephen is going to be executed. So when I talk about God winning, or I talk about the victory of the Lord, I'm not saying that it's always the way that we perceive his victory here on earth. Stephen, in his surrender, was willing to pay the highest price that a human being can pay. But we're also going to see the dramatic effect of his sacrifice, of, of Stephen's personal surrender to Christ, we're gonna see the tremendous impact of that on the church and on the world. It's not just a matter of something local, it's going to be worldwide. And that's gonna be the challenge before us, that, that level of surrender where we relinquish control of ourselves into the hands of Christ. 
and trust him to do in and through us whatever he wants to do for his glory and for the growth of his kingdom and his church.